Let's open our Bibles to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. And we're going to be in verses 13 through 17 this morning. Now, uh, before we dive into our text, I want to make one quick comment uh, on it before, um, before we read the text, because it has to do with the text itself. Uh, so if you guys are following along in your own translation, uh, if you have the, maybe you have this as your own personal Bible, or you have um, the Bible in the backs of the pews there, it's an English standard version of the Bible, and that's what we use here at our church, that's what you'll see on the, on the screen but if you're reading carefully, you'll notice as it's on the screen, there's going to be a word that's going to be different in your translation in the ESV, if you have it, and what's on the screen. Um, and if you look at your Bible, if you have an ESV or any other Bible should have this too, um, you might see a footnote over that word first fruits, if it's, in your, if it's an ESV Bible. And if you go down and read the footnote, it says, some manuscripts chose you from the beginning. Um, what we have in the text this morning is what uh, Bible nerds call a textual variant. Uh, all that that means is that the different manuscripts of the New Testament, that there are, there's conflicting evidence on this one word uh, as to what it is. And so some people think it's uh, first fruits. Some people think it's from the beginning. Now, I'm telling you this because I want you to continue to be assured that the Bible we have is trustworthy and reliable because it is. Uh, and um, let me just say, this particular variant all comes down to whether or not there's a space in between a word. So p- please bear with me for 30 seconds of nerdery that I think will help you understand why we're doing this. Um, so the word first fruits, it's one word in the Greek language. It's the word aparkane, one word altogether is the word for first fruits. The phrase that means, uh, that's translated from the beginning is the Greek preposition ap. And then the Greek word aparche, which is beginning. And so, um, or I'm sorry, arche, op, arche. There you go. Uh, But the question is whether or not there was a space in between those two words or not. And, uh, And so that's really all it is. So in the original manuscripts, there were no spaces between words. And so it's really a question of where do we put the space? Do we put it, uh, and make this one word? Or do we think it was op and then arche and we put a space in between? Just know with all of that, uh, we hardly ever choose something different than what our Bible translation tells us. Um, but in this instance, I'm going to because I think it's more persuasive uh, and that there's a better argument for actually what's in the footnote than what's in the text. Know that I'm not trying to change the Bible, okay? Uh, <laughs> know that I trust the Bible, I love the Bible. And, uh, and also, there are good, godly people that love the Scriptures, that labor hard because they love the church, and they love God, and they want you to be able to hold that Bible in your hands and read it and understand it. And so that's why um, there's all that work done, and they give you a footnote. Anyway, now you all can uh, rest easy for the rest of the sermon, because I know that was going to nag at all of you. And let's continue on and read the text. So Second Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 13 through 17. It says, But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers beloved by the Lord, Because God chose you from the beginning to be saved through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself 
and God our Father who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace. Comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. This is God's word. Thanks be to God for it. And I would invite you to pray with me now that God would teach us and comfort us from his word this morning. Father, we, uh, we come to you this morning as beggars, as people with hands that are open to receive from you, and as people desperately in need of you. So Lord, I pray this morning as we read your word and encounter in it the risen Christ, I pray that you would fill our hands. I pray that you would comfort our anxiousness and our worry, and that you would help us to see Jesus clearly, and that he would be to us more beautiful than anything else this morning. It's in his name we pray. Amen. Well, if you were with us last week, uh, we studied the Thessalonian church uh, is facing a number of threats that the Apostle Paul is addressing in this letter uh, we call Second Thessalonians. And in chapter 2 in particular, they're facing this threat of false teaching about the end times. And in verse 2 of chapter 2, uh, we read that this false teaching is tempting the church to abandon the teaching of the apostles that's been given them and to be overcome with worry and doubt about what will come in the future. But it's into this climate of worry and judgment that Paul spoke a word of encouragement to the church. And that's what we see in verses 13 through 17. And it's, it's that, that's what the Spirit of God would be pleased to do this morning here for us too. He wants to speak to us a word of comfort. See, there is something that we can believe in that will not fail us, that will not cause us to worry about the future. Holding on to the God who holds on to us provides us with eternal comfort and the strength we need to live every day and be confident about our future. So as we study this passage this morning, uh, we're going to take it in three chunks, um, the same three chunks that Mike uh, prayed through. Uh, He kind of set me up there. I appreciate that. (laughs) Um, But it'll be verses 13 and 14, verse 15, and then uh, verses 16 and 17. So if you look at verse 13, uh, you'll see that the, uh, this passage begins with the word but. Now, as readers, we know that the word but is a contrastive word. Uh, it interjects a rebuttal to something that was stated beforehand. That was something that was stated previously. And so if we're going to read this uh, passage well, we can't just read verse 13 and 14 and say, oh, that's good. We have to take it in the context of the larger letter and say, no, what's this? How is it contrasting with something else here? And so let's go ahead and we're going to right now, we're going to back up and we're going to start at verse nine and read the whole way down through verse thir- uh, 14 to try to get this in context. So starting in verse nine, it says the coming of the lawless one is by the activity of Satan, with all power and false signs and wonders, and with all wicked deception for those who are perishing, because they refuse to love the truth and so be saved. Therefore God sends them a strong delusion so that they may believe what is false, in order that all may be condemned who did not believe the truth, but had pleasure in unrighteousness. But we ought always to give thanks to God for you, brothers, beloved by the Lord, 
Because God chose you from the beginning to be saved, through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. To this he called you through our gospel, so that you may obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now as we read that, uh, we, we saw in verse 9 that we're that's talking about this lawless one who's going to come by the power of Satan. Uh, and if you weren't with us last week and aren't familiar with the beginning of First Thess- or Second Thessalonians 2, that might seem really odd to you. Uh, but if you remember, those of you who were here, and we're going to kind of try to catch us up to speed quickly, that what Paul talks about in chapter 2 is that the day of the Lord, the day that Christ comes, is going to be preceded by this man of lawlessness, is what he calls it. It's this person who's going to be a climactic end times figure, who's going to uh, wreak havoc among the people of God and deceive some away from believing in the truth of the gospel. But this man of lawlessness is not something that we just say, okay, that's fine, I guess we'll deal with that when we get to the end. But in verse 7, we read that this man of lawlessness, that his power of deception is already at work in the church and in the world. In verse 7, it calls this the mystery of lawlessness. And so in verses 9 through 12, the Apostle Paul describes those who have been deceived by this mystery of lawlessness. And he describes them as those in verse 10 who uh, do not love the truth. And because of this, because of their deception and lack of love for the truth, God gives them over to their own blindness to be further deceived and ultimately to be judged. And so this is one side of the contrast we have here in 9 through 12. Those who have despised the truth of the gospel, believed the mystery of lawlessness, and have been handed over by God to their own blindness and destruction. But verses 13 and 14 contrast the Thessalonian church with this group of people. Here again, as he did in uh, chapter 1, verse 3, the Apostle Paul gives thanks to God for the church. Uh, He even uses the exact same language. He says, we ought to always to give thanks to God for you, brothers. But here, Paul's thanksgiving is a little bit different. Uh, it's, It's rooted in something a little bit different. So we're not going to turn back there and read, but you, you all can flip back there maybe and look at it. Or remember if you were here a few weeks ago when we preached through this, the, the change in focus that happens. So in verses 3 and 4 of chapter 1, the Apostle Paul's thanksgiving is rooted in the Thessalonian church's perseverance through persecution. In other words, it's rooted in the evidence of their salvation, uh, the fruit of their salvation is what the Apostle Paul gives thanks to God for. But here, Paul thanks God for his action on their behalf in their salvation. So if chapter 1, Paul gives thanks for the evidence of their salvation, here he's giving thanks for the substance of their salvation. God's action that makes up their salvation. And what he wants to get across in these, three, or these two verses here is the role of God past present, and future to bring about the total salvation of all who trust in Christ. So let's look at these three elements, past, present, and future, as they show up in these two verses. So in the past, in verse 13, it says that in his love for us, God chose us from the beginning and called us 
at a point in time into fellowship with himself through the gospel. Now, notice here, there's a lot of, you're going to notice that this is dense. These two verses are dense. They're jam-packed with theological words, with big words, and with big concepts. Uh, We're not going to get into all these. We could probably preach at least three sermons just on these two verses, uh, but we're not going to do that. So we're just going to skate over some of these and highlight some important things. But notice what this, this fundamental point that we need to get from this concept that God chose us from the beginning in his love. So the beginning of God's love for you is not in anything that you brought to the table. It is all originating and beginning in him. And that's good news for us. Because what that means for you and I, who are so prone to mess things up, is that God has been singing of his love for you from before this world was created. And that means he's been singing of you and of his love for you And he chose you before you had the chance to mess that up. And that's a good thing. (laughs) Because I think that's all we would do. In the present, God is working out our salvation through sanctification by the Spirit and belief in the truth. Now, we talked about this a few times throughout the series. Sanctification is another big word. Uh, It's the process of us becoming more and more holy more and more like God as we follow God's commandments. And this sanctification and belief, uh, these, these things aren't, don't happen separately from one another. They happen together. So that's why it says sanctification and belief. They're on the same plane. They're happening at the same time. And what that means is that our salvation in the present is not just us working really hard to obey God's commands and impress God so that he'll like us. That's not what our salvation consists of in the present. Rather, it's us continuing to submit to the Spirit of God and believe in that same good news that called us originally. And out of that, it's us doing good works and obeying God's commands in dependence upon God's grace not in order to earn God's grace. So we got past, God chose us in love and called us. All God. Present, God sanctifies us by his spirit and belief in the truth. All God. And in the future, all God. God promises us that the ultimate goal and end of our salvation is the glory of Christ. And now this is, this is what's phenomenal. Okay, I think we can just skate over this phrase here at the end of verse 14, where he says that we're going to obtain the glory of our Lord Jesus Christ. But think about that for a second. The glory that Jesus Christ, the God-man who raises from the dead, the glory that he possesses by right will be given to you by grace as you share in fellowship with him for all of eternity. I just don't think we can fathom how awesome that is what it is to enjoy resurrection life with Jesus forever and ever and ever, and not by our own merit, by his grace. That's what God wants. He wants to crown you with the glory of the resurrected Christ. And so what all of this, God's action in our salvation, past, present, and future, teaches us is that what God starts, he finishes. So if you submit to God, you give him your past, present, and future, 
All of this is part of his plan to bless you in Christ. So in contrast to those who are deceived, who despise the truth and are destroyed, are those who have been loved by God, called into his family, and are promised an unshakable future. And as a result of that, we delight to believe in the truth. And so all, what all this boils down to, all of these big theological words and concepts and all of this, this is what it boils down to. Paul wants to give us the hope today that no matter what you are facing, if you trust in Christ, God's got this. He is in charge. He is in control. And he is using all things to bless you in Christ. That may sound simplistic, but that is a beautiful truth this morning for us. And so no matter what sufferings rage in your life, no matter what disappointments you may face, no matter what you're tempted to believe in this life that might cause you anxiety and worry about the future, God holds your destiny in his hands. And in Christ, your life has a glorious, promised, assured outcome. That's our hope in Christ. So from that hope, then Paul moves to give us a command in verse 15. Let's read that together. He says, So then, brothers, stand firm and hold to the traditions that you were taught by us, either by our spoken word or by our letter. Now this verse is the kind of the crescendo of what all of chapter 2 has been building towards. This is the main exhortation that the Apostle Paul wants to give to all of us who are prone to anxiety and worry about what the future holds. And we hinted at this in the introduction a little bit, but uh, it's a little bit strange that the Apostle Paul uses the word traditions here. Uh, He tells us to hold fast to the traditions. Um, That's not a common word that we use when we're encouraging one another uh, in a small group Bible study or something like that. But the traditions here, as he speaks of them, that what that simply means, the traditions are the teachings of the apostles. So the teachings of those who saw Jesus and were inspired by God to communicate the history and meaning of Jesus, the Messiah, to the world. And so for us, uh, living in a time where the apostles have died and there are no more apostles, very simply, the traditions are the scriptures, the inspired words of the apostles and prophets that have been preserved by God for his church. And so the apostle Paul is telling us and commanding us here to stand firm upon the truth of Christ as he is revealed in the words of scripture. But the world that we live in today uh, is one that is averse to standing firm on anything. And it's a world that is overcome and ridden with anxiety and worry about the future. Uh, I was reading this week and I came across an article that was uh, talking about teens and what they fear for their peers. Like the things that they most fear that their peers would fall into and things they're most worried about. And the number one thing by a long shot that teenagers were worried about their peers about was not uh, drug and alcohol use. It is not uh, teenage pregnancy. It's anxiety. It's anxiety. By a 20% margin, it's anxiety. And I don't know about you all, 
But I know that my life experience bears this out as well. Uh, I have had so many conversations with friends and others who I've, we both have kind of sat there and just said, we're, we're anxious. We're worried. We don't know why, but we have this feeling that we're worried about something. Uh, we're anxious all the time. I think this plagues our culture today. And I think it's a complex problem. Uh, I don't think that there's an easy uh, reason that can be given for why this is the case. But I think a part of it is that in our fast-paced world, uh, in our social media-driven world, we are constantly faced with the reality of what we are not. We're constantly faced with what we fail to be. So just think about these examples uh, that I'm going to give us here. So you're scrolling through Instagram, and you come across this, uh, this diet and exercise person that, you're follow, that you follow, and you're instantly reminded of the body that you'll never have and the workout regimen that you will never attain to. Or you uh, come across the Instagram of this photographer or travel blogger, and you see them at all these amazing places around the world, and it just brings you face-to-face with the reality that you'll probably never get to go to hardly any of those places. Or you're on Facebook, and you see a link to a blog that reminds you of the mother that you're not. Or you see a TV sitcom where the resounding drum is this clueless husband, and it reminds you of the husband maybe that you're all too familiar with, the husband that you're not. Or the constant news cycle of violence and hatred that we are bombarded with reminds us of the country, of the nation, of the people that we are not. And yet, what is our society's answer to this? What's our society's tradition that we believe will help us cope with this crippling anxiety that we are faced with all the time? Believe in yourself. Express yourself. And I'm just like, how how am I, how is that in any sense good news to me when every day I scroll through Instagram and am confronted time and time again with what I am not? I, the last thing I need to do is believe in myself. The traditions that we all attempt to stand upon other than the truth of the gospel will only result in crippling anxiety and worry, which will ultimately lead to our own undoing. Paul helpfully makes a similar point in Ephesians chapter 4, uh, verses 11 through 14. This will be on the screen for you to follow along. He says, The Holy Spirit gave the apostles, the prophets, the evangelists, the shepherds, and teachers for building up the body of Christ until we all attain to the knowledge of the Son of God, to mature manhood, to the measure of the stature of the fullness of Christ, so that we may no longer be children, tossed to and fro by the waves and carried about by every wind of doctrine, by human cunning, by craftiness in deceitful schemes. You see, the, the counter to what we, are, what we see and experience every day that fuels our anxiety, the counter to that is the body of Christ laboring to understand the scriptures together each using our own unique gifts in this pursuit in order to present one another mature in Christ. See, trying to live your life without standing upon Christ 
is like trying to stay on a surfboard in the middle of Hurricane Dorian. It just doesn't work. We need to be mature and anchored so that every wind and wave of error and deceit doesn't threaten to upend our faith. God wants us this morning, he wants you to have assurance and confidence in the truth that no tradition of man can bring, that belief in yourself cannot bring. And notice this too, that God's way of stabilizing us, of bringing this about, of bringing about maturity in us and belief in the truth is not just pumping us up with knowledge. Right, so you might expect, okay, if I'm supposed to come to the scriptures, believe the truths of the Christian faith, then I just need to read a bunch of books and learn a lot, and then I can know all these things and be confident and stand on that. That's not antithetical to what God wants for you, but I think that that's not the point necessarily. And this is why the structure of this passage is so vital. So you look at this again, verses 13 and 14. Paul reminds the church of the good news of their salvation before he commands them to hold on to the truth. God wants us to hold to the truth of the gospel because of our joy in the gospel, our joy in what God has done for us. He doesn't just want to fill your head with a lot of true doctrine. He wants you to love and delight in the truth because you love and delight in him. The relationship between joy and truth in the Christian life is reciprocal. So God wants you to come to the scriptures desiring to see and know Jesus because you love Jesus. And as you come to the scriptures and you learn more about Jesus, you come back and you're like, your joy in Jesus is increased and you love Jesus more, which drives you back to the scriptures and deeper into joy in Christ and so on and so forth. As we love Jesus more, we'll want to know him more. And as we want to know him more, we'll love him more. Knowledge and love, truth and joy go together in our Christian life and work together to build us up and make us steady. So church, in an age of constant newness, let's rest on the ancient, steady, and sure anchor of the scriptures. Even when things around us feel transient and in flux and our hearts are growing anxious, the truth of God's word and the reality of what he's done for us in Christ will not change. It will never change. Run from the fads of our self-obsessed world. And no matter what our lives look like, what will bring us stability and strength is the truths of the Christian scriptures. Ultimately, that Jesus will come back. He'll win victory over evil and crown all of us who believe with the glory of Jesus. So in Christ is your stability. In Christ is your joy. In Christ is your assurance. As Hebrews chapter 6 says, in Christ is a steadfast anchor for your souls. Cling to him. Well, you might say uh, to that, you might say, well, that's, that's all fine and good. Um, but I don't know if I'm sure of anything in this life. Uh, I don't know if I have assurance and confidence in, in many things. Where is there room uh, for doubt in 
the Christian life? What happens when a doubt creeps in about a particular Christian belief or about my faith in general? I think as Christians, there there are two opposite extremes that we can take when we address uh, this issue of doubt. And I think there are different, two different groups that react this way largely and they kind of interact with each other. So on the one side, uh, you can handle doubt and treat it as if doubt is inherently sinful. So for you to doubt anything about your Christian walk or faith is inherently sinful and somebody might say to you, well, you're not believing a part of the faith, so repent and, uh, and get with the program. And then on the other side, you might have those who say that doubt is almost an intrinsic good. That we're always supposed to be questioning. And if we're not questioning, then we're not genuinely experiencing what it means to be a Christian. And as you can tell by the way I framed this probably, I don't think that either of those are particularly good options, ways to handle our doubts. I think as Christians, what the scriptures teach us, especially the book of Psalms, is that it's not as important what whether we doubt or not, but what's important is what we do with our doubts. What's important is who we take our doubts to. And you see in the Psalms a pattern of the psalmists coming before God and laying themselves bare. They don't hold anything back. They're honest about their doubts and their worries and their concerns, and they're bold about that. But they bring it before God. And if you watch the trajectory of a lot of these psalms, it starts in utter despair and chaos and questioning, and it ends in assurance and joy and a triumphant person who is satisfied in the love of God for them. And so, church, I would just say to you, if you're here this morning and you're doubting something about your faith, God doesn't want you to fake it. Uh, He wants you to bring your doubts to him. But he also doesn't want to leave you perpetually doubting. He wants you to be assured of your faith. He wants you to be confident in what you believe. If you're here this morning and you're somebody who's maybe just questioning Christianity for the first time, or you're just kind of figuring out Jesus and what he means to you and what the Bible says, I would just say, I think this is a place We hope this is a place where your questions can be answered fairly and where we would welcome them. Uh, We are not going to jump down your throat and say, your doubt is sinful, repent and believe. Uh, We want you to ask questions. And ultimately, our hope is that you would bring those questions before God. And he would be pleased to transform your doubt into a rock-solid security in his love for you. Finally, we come to verses 16 and 17. Uh, where Paul prays the prayer of comfort over this church. Let's read those verses together. He says, Now may our Lord Jesus Christ himself and God our Father, who loved us and gave us eternal comfort and good hope through grace, comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. My wife, uh, Whitley, grew up in a military family. And so uh, her dad just retired, I think, two years ago. From He was in the United States Army for 30 years. And uh, so her life came with the typical challenges of a military child. Uh, they moved a good bit. Um, and she, you know, friends were kind of always in flux a little bit. Uh, but the hardest thing, she would tell you by far, is when her father would deploy. 
And his deployments were relatively short throughout his career in the army, but there was one particular deployment where he was gone for 15 months uh, while Whitley was in 8th and ninth grade and her older brother was in uh, 10th and 11th grade. So really formative years for them. And this was a hard time for their family. And Whitley has always said, and she would tell you, she would talk about her dad for 30 minutes if you asked her this morning. She loves her dad. Her, she's got a great dad. Her dad has loved her so well. Uh, and from before he was born, before she was born, he loved her. He loved her as a child all throughout the different phases of her life. But when it came to this moment where he was gone, and the reality was, Whit wasn't going to be able to see him for 15 months, she didn't know his love in the same way. Like she knew it cognitively. She knew that his love for her does not change, has not changed. Uh, but she doesn't feel that whenever he's all the way across the world. And she can't talk to him regularly or see his face. But that day, when he returned home and they were all, all the soldiers' families were in this airplane hangar and some terrible Toby Keith song was playing as they all came marching back in, uh, she knew that he loved him, right? She could look him in the eyes for the first time in 15 months. She ran up to him and gave him a hug. And then next week when she went back to school, he could pick her up and take her out to Starbucks after school. She knew his love for her in a way that she didn't while he was gone. She knew it what experientially that it was true. And this is exactly what the Apostle Paul is praying for us in these two verses. He wants those of us to know who have believed in the gospel. He wants us to experience the reality of the gospel afresh and anew and be comforted by it. He wants you to know this morning of the love that God has had for you since before the world began. The love which he called you to himself in the gospel. The love that he displays towards you in his spirit as he works with you. And the love that he has destined you for all of eternity to share in. He wants you to feel that this morning. He wants you to be comforted in that this morning. This is his heart for you. And notice, too, what this comfort is supposed to do for you. In verse 17, May Lord Jesus Christ himself comfort your hearts and establish them in every good work and word. So he's saying, I hope that the gospel comforts your heart, warm, that the love of Christ warms your heart today, and that that causes you to get out of here and get to work for the glory of God and for his work in the world. And so I pray the same for you this morning. I pray as you leave here, that you'd be comforted with the love of Jesus for you. And that that would produce immeasurable good works. I pray that if you're here this morning too, and you've never experienced a comfort like this, you've only experienced anxiety and constant worry about what the future might bring or how you're not measuring up. I pray that you would cling to Jesus this morning. Pray that you would run from this belief in yourself and run to the one who can actually uphold you through this life and see you out on the other side where he will crown you with the glory of Christ. And I pray that for all of us this morning here who maybe have not experienced the comfort and love of Jesus for a long time, I pray that God's spirit would be pleased as you seek him in his word. I pray that he would be pleased to revive your heart and make his love and comfort known.
And also, I pray that you would know he's not going anywhere. He loves you, and he is there for you. And I pray that you would feel comforted. And so, church, may we experience today this strength and comfort bought for us on the cross by Christ, a comfort and strength that allow us to take on the terrifying realities of this world with no fear because our God chose us, called us, is sanctifying us, and will return one day to shower upon us the glory of Jesus. And may we go forth from here in the meantime, holding fast to the truth and ready to take on anything that hell throws our way because of the hope that we have in Jesus. May he give you comfort. Let's pray. Father, the, the love that we have just read about, that you give to us, is not something that we can easily fathom. It's not something that sinks down all at one time. But Lord, I pray today that as we have heard from your word, I pray that you would help that love to become more real to each of us today. Oh Lord, if there are those in here who are, who are run ragged with worry and anxiety, who don't know what their future holds and that plagues them every day, I pray that they would rest in the rock-solid assurance that Jesus Christ brings. And I pray that we would all, as we do that, experience deep, rich comfort by your Spirit, assured and confident of the love that you have for us. And may that cause us to get to work, doing your will, obeying your commands, and loving our neighbors as we go from this place. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.